I get buckets. What's up, guys? Welcome to Blue Wire Buckets. I'm Justin Rowan from the Chase Down Podcast. With me today is Ben Dowsett of Sharp Notes. Ben, how you doing, buddy? Doing good, Justin. Thanks for having me, man. Oh, I, I mean, thanks for putting up with me. Thanks for coming back. I, I was surprised after the last time that you, you were so willing to jump on again with me. So I, I appreciate that. It's, I, dude, I, I, have no, I actually thought last week went a little better. Then I, I was worried you guys were going to make me cry. I didn't have any. I didn't cry at all. So it was fantastic. I'm I'm a little more reasonable on podcasts. I, there's le- there's a little less trolling. There's still going to be some mixed in, but uh, I'm I'm mostly giving my real thoughts. Also with us today, we got Richie Randall of the Buzzbeat Pod, also the Blue Wire Network. Richie, how's it going, man? Doing good. First timer right here. Hopefully, I'm not getting scared off. It sounds like uh, Ben is returning, but he shouldn't be returning. Is that what you're saying, Justin? <laughs> I, I will never tell someone what they should or shouldn't do. Um, but I mean, right now we're, we're just three fans of teams that aren't in the playoffs right now. That's right. So, uh, That's right. We're, we're, we're here to uh, bring our perspective and our analysis to the uh, discord. So I'm going to start off here. So before we launch into Warriors Rockets, because right now we're recording about a half hour after the game. It's pretty fresh in my mind and I've got takes. But before we get to that, I think we should kind of cap off the first round with Denver advancing over the Spurs. Spurs put up a great fight. I was pretty impressed, especially as the game kind of progressed and Denver was coughing up their lead. I was impressed that Denver got stops when they needed to. But ultimately, I'm just happy that Denver advanced because I, I really do feel as though uh, they're the team that can give Portland a, a better better fight than uh, the Spurs would have. And I'm just kind of done with the Spurs. Like, it's a great story. I think Pop did a great job. But ultimately, I, I'm, I'm fine with them being out. Richie, what was kind of your thoughts on Denver advancing? I didn't watch a whole lot of that series. Uh, but I would agree with you in the sense that uh, I am a little bit done and over with the Spurs. Uh, the team is not a fun team to watch in the sense that they – uh, you know, take a whole lot of mid-range shots, uh, and they're just a team that I, 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 it's nice to see Denver, first time coming in here, uh, and a lot of doubters out there making it to the second round. But uh, I am a big Portland fan, and uh, Damian Lillard is my guy. He's, you know, I'm a Hornets fan, so we always compare Kemba as a Dame light, and I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying what he's doing over there uh, in Portland. So I think that Portland will win the series. But like you said, it's nice to see Denver, someone else other than the Spurs, make it past that first round. I think the watchability like degrees there between when you go uh, the one side right. of that series being the Spurs, who are like just from the modern standpoint that you you guys are right, they're just really not not a whole lot of fun to watch. And then on the other side is Nikola Jokic. There was that one sequence uh, from Game Seven. I don't know if you guys remember it, where Murray had the behind the back pass to Jokic on the fast break, and then Jokic had the wraparound pass around his defender to the corner for an open three or something like that. I don't remember exactly how it happened. I was like, I remember making noises. I always make noises when I watch Denver. I didn't have like a <laughs> whole lot of rooting interest in that series. Other than that, I'll agree with you guys on that. I think, and I also think that just a pr- the appreciation of Jokic in general, and I'm happy that we like the national, not that, you know, us nerds, we've known about the, the, uh, Jokic for a long time, the, uh, but 
the national consciousness, I think, now has a bit more of a chance to get acquainted with him, and he's so much fun. Like, wh- whatever's happening with him, whether it's going good or bad, he's so much fun in every way. And so I'm, I'm happy as well. That, that And I do think I agree with both of you guys once again. I think the second round is going to be much more entertaining now because I don't think Portland had – or excuse me, I don't think San Antonio had much for Portland. Yeah, I will say that Nurkic, you know, being out for Portland is going to be a big factor in the sense that uh, we, I, I would really want to see the Nurkic-Jokic matchup, but uh, I guess we're just dealing with, what, Cantor now? Yeah, I, I mean, you read my mind. Like, I feel because of, like, LaMarcus Aldridge versus Cantor isn't going to be enticing. Like, LaMarcus is just going to shoot his mid-range shots. He's going to continue playing his game. But Jokic, I, I feel he can really, really eat against Cantor, and that's far from a hot take. But I feel like Jokic being able to eat is going to lead to Dame needing to do some spectacular things, which I I think just makes for a fantastic series. Obviously, Jamal Murray, that's going to be a bit of an issue for Denver. I I love my my son Murray, but having to guard either uh, Dame or CJ is going to be pretty difficult. Like Gary, Gary Harris can do a good job there. But it's going to be interesting to see how Denver matches up defensively and then also how Portland adjusts to needing to defend Jokic. I'm really I'm wondering, honestly, as we talk about this and as I've been thinking about the series, how much are either of these teams going to be able to defend each other at all? This might be a fantastically entertaining offensive series because you look at the way that Portland had success defend and they've had success defending down the stretch since they lost Nurkic, even with Cantor as their kind of their main big. They've been playing that same really intelligent Terry Stotts drop back style on the pick and roll where all Cantor has to do is be seven foot tall and like kind of stand in the right place and he's going to be fine defensively you can't and that works really well especially against a team with Russell Westbrook that's running mm-hmm. a lot of pick and rolls and coming right at you in the paint uh, with Denver they play a completely different style you can't play that way against Nikola Jokic who is initiating a lot of their offense from the elbows uh, a lot of handoff plays a lot of like little backdoor cuts and things like that where Cantor's going to be pulled away from the rim even to begin with so I don't see I think Portland's going to have a lot more trouble defending Denver than they have even just in the last series and to close the year where they did a better job than you would have expected after they lost Nurkic and then you kind of went into it Justin that I think uh, it's going to be really hard on the other end as well uh, for because I don't necessarily think that Jokic has the foot speed to come out there and chase around Dame especially if he's playing kind of the way that he did in that last series and getting the support that he did absolutely I mean it's interesting that both teams biggest strength offensively comes matched against the other team's biggest weakness like I, I would assume that Murray probably gets thrown onto Aminu um, and then they have Will Barn or whoever the the three guard out there is defending whoever Gary Harris isn't guarding out of Portland's guard tandem, but I I really Harris Harris has got to get Lillard for at least for me. That's like, if he's got the, if he's able to physically, I know he's still sort of working back from the injury. If he can do it, he's got to get Lillard for me. See, I'm, I'm almost leaning towards putting Barton on, on Lillard just because there's more length and Dame's going to cook no matter who you put on him. So if you can kind of neutralize CJ McCollum and make Dame do everything, I think that might give you a better shot because if Gary Harris is working his ass off, but Dame is still putting up an efficient 35 points, how much are you really gaining there? And I think that just opens up McCollum eating. So maybe you just have to kind of sacrifice and say, okay, Dame's going to get his, but if we can take everybody else away, we should have enough air power and we should be able to capitalize on Cantor defensively and outscore Portland in the series. But I think it's going to be a track meet. That's the only conclusion I can come to. 
whoever picks up Dame needs to pick him up as soon as he crosses midcourt. I mean, I don't know what you guys think of his like logo threes, but he's five of five <laughs> in the playoffs this year. Paul George uh, disagrees, 30... man. Paul George disagrees. <laughs> <laughs> five of five and thirty plus uh, three point or thirty feet uh, in this playoff so far. Five of five. That's ridiculous. It's funny because I remember a couple, even a couple of years ago, you would never be able to shoot that shot in 2K and 2K has made like the adjustments to the game. It's still lagging behind, but it's mind boggling that these are legitimately good shots because they're in rhythm shots for Dame. Uh, Steph obviously has popularized uh, those Mm -hmm. shots. Harden can hit them. It's just changing the game. It it completely, it's throwing defensive schemes completely out of whack. I guess the the next thing I, I want to move on to is the Golden State uh, Houston matchup because this is kind of the the marquee game. Uh, the the first two games of the second round were both blowouts, but even though they were blowouts, I felt like Philly and Toronto, as well as Milwaukee, Boston, those were entertaining games. There were stretches where both teams made great runs. It was fun basketball. This was a tough, tough damn watch. Um, the calls were inconsistent on both ends. I know that's going to be the major storyline. You're going to hear everybody talking about the officiating in that game. Um, but it it was just, it was tough to watch. It, it, there was no flow to the game and, and the inconsistency of the officiating. As much as I hate talking about refs, it's going to be the story. Exactly. I mean, between the turnovers with the Warriors and the, and the no calls and everything like that, uh, I had it on, but it feels like my eyes were just glazed watching this game. And there, w- there was no flow, no, no flow whatsoever. And uh, you have to feel for the Houston Rockets, who were probably on the, uh, the bad end of these calls more often than the Warriors. Uh, several times, Harden did not give a chance, did not get a chance to land. Uh, and then there was one that was real late in the game where he got fouled, or at least I thought he got fouled, uh, and there was another no call. And then we saw that CP3 got uh, ejected with his second technical. I, mm, my regular like followers, if there are any who are listening to this, will know that I, I take a, a little bit of a different path than most when it comes to my conversations about NBA referees. Uh, <laughs> so games like this tend to frustrate me because I feel like our discourse is really, uh, really poor as far as referees. But even I will say this. The league has made a big emphasis. In fact, I had Monty McCutcheon on Sharp Notes a few weeks ago. You guys know I'm good at plugging myself, so I'm going to do that just a little. Nice to done. And one of the points specifically that he may I asked him specifically about officiating heading into the playoffs, the impression that some people have that it's a different game or that it gets called differently, things like that. And he was the strongest words he had on that entire podcast were for that area where he said, I'm going to be on the phone with the crew chiefs of every game for my playoff series, especially in the first and second rounds to make sure it's fresh. In uh, saying to all of our guys, we want the same points of emphasis that have been called in November to be called now. And within that framework, I tweeted about it during this game, and Mike D'Antoni came out and said after the game that the officials actually admitted it to him. They missed four of those calls in the first half, and they were clear. They were they were really obvious. I think the ones in the second half were a bit more debatable. We're probably not going to get into the weeds about those, but the refs missed four of those, and they were obvious. And they were obvious in areas that the league has made really clear. They want points of emphasis in. They want these things called. And within that uh, if folks have, you know, want to get frustrated about that from the Rockets end, I think it's legitimate to a degree. I will just say that, again, missed calls are part of the game. I, I know that they don't necessarily always swing the game in such obvious ways, maybe, as they did in this game. But missed calls happen in every single game and affect every single NBA game that's played throughout the year. And, like, may, obviously, again, not in such obvious ways. I'll just I, – I want both sides considered, I guess, is all I'll say. 
my big thing is I don't think the officiating necessarily dictated the outcome of the game. There were, there were more than enough opportunities for both of these teams to come out and get a win. And there was a lot of mistakes, mental errors, uh, turnovers, things that were within their own control. But when you get poor calls, it can impact kind of your, your mentality. It can throw you out of your rhythm. And that was the biggest thing for me because th- there were calls that went against both teams. I agree, um, especially because of the way that Houston's game is predicated on getting calls and, and capitalizing on the whistle. Um, it really didn't benefit them. Um, but how they reacted to the calls, the, the way that they allowed themselves to get frustrated, that that really was not doing them any favors. And what I'm most interested in is how the officiating is next game, because there, there's going to be a correction. I'm interested to see whether or not it will be an overcorrection, but I, there's the potential for that, or they might just continue to let things go. So how the, the refs adjust, how the teams adjust, and, and how they mentally handle calls or non-calls is going to be really interesting for me moving forward. That's a good point because they were consistent, even though it was uh, on the bad side. They were consistent in the sense they weren't calling those, those fouls behind the arc when they were giving them space to land. Uh, but it did have an effect on the players. And I think naturally any, anybody would you know get upset at the refs and, and clearly it's going to take you out of the flow of the game. What are, what are your thoughts on the way that, uh, you know, kind of Paul handles the refs at times? I feel clearly, yes, he's upset. You know, he, he shouldn't he should be getting these calls or Harden should be getting these calls. But uh, just the way he handles the refs sometimes, it, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way. I, I mean, he's the caricature, right? He, he's the guy that everyone points to when you talk about players losing their cool uh, calls. Like it, it's him. It's Kyle Lowry. It's the guys that get the most animated. Um, Ben, what are your thoughts on Chris Paul and his stance towards officials? I mean, my thoughts, frankly, I actually will let Chris Paul off the hook here because I just don't see how he's like that much different from a, a huge number of NBA players. And I think it's I think it's ridiculous all the way across the board. I've, I Again, my commentary is usually very different from everybody else's here. But if you've seen me tweet about it, it's and, and Brian Windhorst, to his credit, wrote a piece about it a couple weeks ago that people seem to roundly ignore for some reason. Now, a few people paid attention to it. But like even for a guy as big as Windhorst to be saying it, nobody really ever wants to hear it. The uh, the way that these guys are treated, they're not treated as human. I shouldn't say guys, there are some female officials in the league now as well. They're not treated as humans for large periods of time. And if you just, just from a basic psychology standpoint, even if you don't care about like, you know, treating people decently and being ethical to them, which I find really hilarious. Like I always, you know, I made the example of Steve Kerr on Twitter, which Windhorse used in his article that Steve Kerr is a beacon of speaking out for ethical behavior and things like that. Absolutely no problem dressing down a referee with like a hundred cuss words if he does something wrong on the court. The whole point of that is even if you don't care about being a decent person and all you care about is getting good results from the refs so that your team can do better and win, Screaming at people and being as negative as possible and swearing and pointing fingers in their face and laughing at them when they do stuff wrong, that's not going to benefit you in their eyes. They're still calling the game that you're involved in. You should probably treat, teach yourself and train yourself to respond a little differently because people are always going to have emotional reactions to stuff, even refs who are supposed to be unbiased. And when they get fingers pointed in their face constantly, do you think that's helping your case? I don't know. Again, I just think that the way we approach this in general, the way the league, fans, lots of players approach it is like completely backwards. And if you thought about it from the standpoint of people being people and making mistakes, which they uh-huh. do, uh-huh. then the, a whole 
lot of the discourse would be different and the way you respond to it would be very different. Yeah, I, I mean, at the very least, the optics are poor, right? Like, I, I don't think that this does the league any favors and, and it's something that um, may, maybe they need to discuss it and look at a little bit further. I, I did think Windhorse did a good job in his piece, um, but whenever the refs are the story, that that's never that's never a good thing for the league. It's This is one of those games that I don't think anyone feels good about it. The Warriors felt cheated at times from the calls. Uh, the, the Rockets, this is a tough game to let slide um, because they, they had a real opportunity to win this one. And then plus Warriors fans probably feel pretty crappy too because Kevin Durant showed out while Steph Curry uh, didn't look so good. Um, big <laughs> shout out to Kevin Durant actually. In the five games yeah. since he said, I'm Kevin Durant, you know who I am. He's averaging over 40 points a game. Can I get a quick one-word answer from both of you guys? Who was the best player on the Warriors? I think Kate. Uh, I'm. Oh God, you asked for one word. I'm bad at that. Well, one player. One. Yeah. No. No reasoning. Just. Just give me the best. Kevin player. Durant's the best player. Steph's the most important. Wait. Wait. Are you saying for this game or for oh, like no, the, no, the no. general just, conversation? Just currently. Just currently. Ugh, I hate that. I hate that. I know. My, I know. my answer's still Curry. Huh. Yeah, see, I, I've swayed. I think best. Before. I think best and most important are closer together than they most yeah. people think they are, and Curry is that. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. He, he is the one that gives the team that their identity, and there's no denying that. Um, I just think in a vacuum, I'd probably take KD, but I mean, those are the debates that make things interesting. Um, one best player debate that I, I'm interested in you both of your thoughts on. So now we've moved another round in the Eastern Conference. We saw Giannis struggle a little bit against Boston in game one while Kawhi Leonard really stepped up in a big way. He he just absolutely ate against Philadelphia. And he was kind of reminding us that he does have this other gear and he is one of the better playoff performers that we've seen. I, I know Giannis, to me, he's was my MVP. Um, I think he was the best player in the league uh, during the regular season. But I, I think come playoffs, especially when defenses adjust, the game slows down, it's a little bit more in the half court. I'm starting to lean towards Kawhi being the best player in the East. Ben, what are your thoughts on that? I think this is a re- kind of a really interesting way that you can look at the difference between, and I mean, I don't want to get into the whole like regular season versus playoff player because I don't, I don't, that stuff was done for the Jazz. Well, I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's a thing <laughs> to clarify. I'm not saying no. that Giannis is a regular season yeah, player. No. Absolutely. No. And you never said that either. I just, I wanted to make sure it didn't sound like I was saying that and what I'm about to say, which is pretty much just that it is, however, an interesting, uh, an interesting way to look at kind of a broad group of games versus a far more specific environment like the playoffs, which is what exactly what we're in. And obviously we say Giannis struggle in game one uh, with against maybe one of the toughest matchups for him in the league. I think Al Horford is, of guys in the league right now, I can't think of too many who I would prefer to to guard Giannis onto like he's he's up there and Boston was fantastically prepared they did a really really good job prepping for this series clearly um all their I think all their guys did a really good job crashing the boards uh they just in general they did a really good job and then you see on the flip side Kawhi is maybe a little uh, I think you could say that he's less schemable in that sense he's less uh easy to prepare for but at the same time and well I don't know I was gonna say there isn't a matchup so bad for him on Philly but at the same time you actually do look at Philly and you think boy they have a few guys they should be able to throw at exactly. and pretty much pretty much no one had success against him except for I think Simmons occasionally did and he Simmons certainly thought he did he had that quote after and, game, and but, even uh, when you have a, a good defensive matchup you also have a lot of guys that can provide help defense like you should have Jimmy Butler and Ben Simmons 
that you can throw on him, even Tobias Harris. Then you have Joel Embiid and whoever isn't guarding him as help defenders, and he still just went off. He, he, he... I was I was shocked by how much he took Butler to town in particular. And frankly, I had a note here from that series. Where's Jimmy Butler at? He had that huge game one against Brooklyn, and since then he's averaging like 10 points a game and barely shooting. I'm not kind of wondering what's going on with him. I was a big proponent of uh, trading him again uh, and having Tobias Harris kind of step up in his role. Uh, but yeah, he, he has been a little bit absent in this playoffs. And um, But I think we do have to give credit to Boston and how they played Giannis. Uh, but to your original question, uh, Justin, in terms of who's the better player, I still think Giannis is the better player. But to your point, when things slow down in the playoffs – uh, and if you don't have a three-point shot, it's much more difficult to kind of create on your own. Uh, and Kawhi is more versatile in that aspect. Yeah, and, and to be clear, these two are by far and away the, the best players in the conference. Like, um, even with Kyrie Irving being fantastic in, in Game One uh, against Milwaukee, the, those two are just they impact the game at, at a different level and on both ends of the floor. And the big thing for me too, maybe this is also an experience thing, but Kawhi knows how to counter whatever the defense is throwing at him. Whereas Giannis, right now, I feel that there there's some adjustments that you have to make uh, from a coaching perspective. You you have to do things to get him some easier looks in the half court. Uh, I thought they they had made a good adjustment kind of putting him on an island uh, in the first half after he had struggled early on. Um, they, they had put him on the far side and allowed him to kind of work one-on-one instead of initiating at the top of the three-point line. And I was surprised that they went away from that. But I, I just feel with Giannis, uh, uh, at least offensively in the half court, you have to drop looks. You have to figure out ways to get him easy shots. Whereas we, we see it time and time again when the defense is taking ev- everything away from you, these elite isolation scorers and guys that can create their own shot, they they're tough to replace. There's just nothing like it. And it's part of the reason I was so disappointed uh, with Detroit making the playoffs over Charlotte, because especially with Blake Griffin being hurt, I I would have liked to see what Kemba does in in those ISO situations. And when the team just needs a bucket. Hey, we, we still got swept by the way, but uh, yeah, I think (laughs) just having, (laughs) I think having Kemba in the playoffs over an injured Blake Griffin would have been a whole lot more uh, entertainment uh, and something that we're talking about on our pod right now in terms of if we did make the playoffs, maybe that would be a big push in kind of bringing Kimba back this offseason. But that's a different conversation for a different day. I will say, just to kind of add on to that, to what you said, Justin, as far as the the adjustments that might be made from Milwaukee, I do think we're going to see them. And I'm I'm pretty interested, actually, in the off-ball stuff. And I have that I mean that in a two-faceted way. First of all, I'm interested in Milwaukee doing a bit more with Giannis off the ball. They did a bit of screening uh, with him tonight, I, or today, excuse me. I don't know what the numbers were for it, but it felt like they got some decent stuff out of that a couple times to be have Horford a little more off-balance, although Horford played it really well. Well, a few times you could dial that in a little more, but then more specifically, I'm, and maybe this is like too in depth for our listeners or whatever, but I'm, I'm really interested to see what Milwaukee does away from the ball when Giannis has it. They're, Boston's actually doing a lot of like, or at least in game one, they did a lot of, so Horford had him in, in space, but then as he got nearer to the rim, uh-huh. because we know Giannis has that great patience around the rim where he can really slow guys down, they crashed down on him really well, and they did a good job cutting off his passing lanes and everything, but I think there's some stuff that Milwaukee can do to kind of anticipate that, set some more flare screens off the ball, 
do some like it doesn't have to be complicated stuff. There's pretty easy stuff you can do to spring guys like Miritich, uh, Ilyasova to a degree, I suppose. Middleton definitely because um, they it looked like when they were going to Middleton, they were kind of just like, hey, Middleton, post up. Like we're just gonna post you up, and that's uh, for me. That's not the most efficient way of of using him. With them do with Boston doing as well as they did against Giannis, which it looks like they probably have the blueprint to keep doing at least to some degree. I think you got to work on what you do for giving Giannis outlet options uh, once they close down on. And to your point, Ben, I mean, think you know, the Celtics did a great job. It, it almost felt like a zone. Anytime he got in the paint, it, it yep. they collapsed. They collapsed, yep. and you almost wonder with all eyes turning to Giannis when he gets in the paint. Yes, they have shooters, and, and they tend to kind of stay behind the three-point line. You also wonder if running a cutter in there, you know, mm-hmm. just coming, you know, straight line, beeline for the basket, and Giannis can find him. But, you know, Giannis can't get so into trying to beat his man in the post, especially with the way that Horford's playing and the way that Stevens has got this defense playing inside the paint when he gets in there. So he's got to be able to look for his shooters outside. That's a good call. Like D Wade, random cuts, basically. Yeah. Like good following the ball after the drive. That's a, that would be a really good way to get some secondary stuff. The other going. thing is the gap can't be that big at the point guard position. Like Kyrie is definitely the better player, but Bledsoe can't go one of five. Like he has to be more assertive, and they can't allow Kyrie to get whatever he wants. Like this was an absolute clinic when it comes to running a team. Uh, Kyrie, 26 points, 11 assists, seven boards. He was efficient. Uh, he found he was passing guys open. Um, he he it looked like he was covered perfectly. He would find Al Horford for, for those kind of pick and pop jumpers. Um, he, he was just in absolute command of the game. And you're not going to win if Kyrie's putting up 26 and 11. Like he he can beat you as a scorer. But if he's doing it both with the pass and with his own jumper, you're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, that's the thing, too, because, you know, Bucks are trying to get out and run. So they, they got to get stops for that to happen. So a, a lot of the, uh, you know, especially in the first half, Kyrie was cooking back to the basket game, fadeaways and things of that nature. And, and some of those things you just can't defend. Um, you know, when he's on like that, uh, it's very difficult to defend. But uh, they've got to try their best to to slow him down and, and get stops and get out and transition because that's where Bucks do their their best job. Crab Rangoon, things of that nature. <laughs> Before we wrap things up, I, I do want to just return to Philly, Toronto, because this was a series I just, it was entertaining, uh, but I even from the start, I did not feel like it was going to be a long series. And a large part of that is because of what Marcus All can do to Joel Embiid defensively. Uh, he, he really does take him out of the game. And that's Toronto starting five. Now that they're starting to actually click and play together a little bit more, that is one of the most complete and complementary units that I can remember. I, I mean, it's not exactly ideal from uh, in a small ball league to, to have Marc Gasol, old Marc Gasol out there, but the defensive IQ and just how well those pieces fit together, it, it really, really is a strong unit, especially when uh, Kawhi and Siakam are playing as well as they did offensively. I got a number on that. You guys want a number? I, I don't like numbers. Let's do it. Yeah, so uh, we're using the NBA's impact uh, data where you can look at like how guys did with other guys on or off the floor. The Raptors last night were plus 10 when Embiid was on the floor being guarded by Gasol and minus 14 when he was on the floor being guarded by Ibaka. So what you're saying is Marc Gasol is to Joel Embiid what Tristan Thompson is to Al Horford? 
Yeah, basically. It sounds like that's, uh, it seems like that might be the thing. Uh, and it, I thought that was visibly apparent during the game as well. I was tweeting during it about if it was me, I'd be coming pretty close to trying to match Gasol with all of Embiid's minutes at this point. Because if you can neutralize that matchup the way they did last night, I think we're seeing that Toronto clearly has a superior team outside of that. Uh, I, I'll be honest, I tweeted vaguely about it because I don't like making predictions on Twitter. I, I picked privately a sweep in this series of Toronto. Uh, I think Toronto is a lot better than Philly, and this is a, I think this is a poor matchup for Philly. And I also think Toronto is playing extremely good basketball at this point of the year. You're right, Justin. I think Gasol changed things pretty significantly for them. Uh, and if they, especially if they re, if Nurse really commits to matching some rotations there, which I think he will. He kind of made some comments after the game about wanting to stick with his original rotations in game one just because of how well they've been playing recently. But I am I got the idea that he was willing to tinker with it, and he's the, he's the type of coach who's definitely willing yeah, to he, He's, he's a uh, big time tinker. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and if they're willing to do that, and Kawhi, I don't even think Kawhi has to play that well every game. Although obviously he played fantastic, but uh, between Siakam and what he can do, and then the bench unit that Toronto is running, which is still just really, really good. Although I didn't, I thought Nurse maybe shouldn't have run his like deep bench quite so much. But like, yeah. All that said, I think Toronto's in a pretty good position at this point, and you know they're probably pretty happy that Milwaukee lost a game, and there's maybe some turmoil going on in the West as well. Richie, what are your thoughts on the series? No, I would agree with Ben. I, th- I think it might be a short one. I'm not sure if it's going to be a sweep, uh, but potentially five games. Uh, yeah, Marcus they won Gasol. game one, so I'm over my biggest hurdle. Like <laughs> they, they, that was yeah. my biggest concern was game one That's making true. that pick. That's true. And I, I keep forgetting that Marcus All actually won Defensive Player of the Year. I know it's been a handful of years since he's done that, but uh, I think people forget that he actually is. Uh, somewhat of a bruiser. He can play defensive pick-and-roll coverages pretty well, um, and I, I always forget that about him. But, yeah, I, I think it will be a short one. Defensively, the Toronto Raptors are very switchable, very athletic uh, between Siakam and Leonard. Uh, they're going to they're gonna pose some problems for the, for the uh, 76ers. Absolutely. Well, the, uh, what many people are proclaiming as the, uh, the best second round we've got is off to a little bit of a weird start. But uh, I'm still really, really excited about these matchups, and I'm excited to see how all of these series progress. Thank you guys so much for coming on. I want to give a shout-out to our listeners. We really do appreciate all the support. Remember, the best way to support the podcast, tell your friends and family about it. Word of mouth really helps us grow, as well as leaving a rating, leave a review, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, cook those books. And if you want to follow us all on Twitter, uh, you can follow at Ben underscore Dowsett, at Richie Randall, and me at at Kazanada. So thanks to you guys very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.